0: Welcome to the Core Women Podcast. My name is Dr. Summer Watson. I'm a doctor of psychology, podcaster, published author, coach, producer of documentary empowerment films, and empowerment seminars. This podcast is a special place for the hearts and souls of women. It is a place where women share their journeys, strength, resiliency, strategy, and passions. Today on the show, I'd like to welcome Karen Fleshman, who is a mentor activist, entrepreneur, attorney, author, educator, proud San Franciscan, and a single soccer mom. In 2014, she founded Racy Conversations. We have so much to talk about, so let's get right into this, and welcome.
1: Thank you so much, Summer. I'm so excited to be
0: here. Well, I'm excited to have you here, and you've done so much. So let's start talking about where you grew up, and some of the challenges that you might have confronted going through your personal and professional
1: journey. Thank you so much. So I grew up on the front range of the Colorado Rockies in a town called Loveland, Colorado. Uh, I lived there from second grade until I graduated from high school. And Loveland was a very conservative, uh, nearly all white community uh, when I grew up. But I became an activist in elementary school when some conservative parents tried to ban Judy Blume books from our school library. So I organized a petition drive and I went and spoke in front of the city council, the, the Board of Ed and I won. Uh, we Yay! won, we got to keep <laughs> Judy Blume books. So I've been an activist since then and the early part of my career was in the immigrants rights movement and I later shifted focus to workforce development. Wow, oh my gosh,
0: how amazing. And you started so early in relation to really kind of making some movement, making change, and making change in your elementary school. And I love that because I have my own story about Judy Bloom and the book forever. Love Judy Bloom, grew up with her, just oh. So my mom bought me out all the books actually. She's like, here are all these great books, read them. And she bought me for forever. And um, I took forever to school with me. And I went to a Catholic school from fifth to eighth, and I, it was my fifth grade year. That book was taken away from me and I could not read it. My mother was called and she said, I gave her that book. And they said, well, it's not allowed here. And she said, okay, well, she can read it at home. So I didn't. I wasn't quite the activist, but I still
1: read Judy Bloom. Will you see how the patriarchy wants to rob us of self knowledge? The patriarchy wants us to, wants to rob us of self acceptance, of understanding that our sexuality and our bodies are part of who we are, and that we own them. And they start at a very early age, so anything like Judy bloom that's like affirming to girls that you are normal and and you are good and and don't um you know don't conform or or don't feel like you have to shrink yourself is very threatening to the patriarchy because they're like, "Oh no, 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 keep yourself shrunk, keep yourself tiny, right,
0: right, too true." And yet there are women like us who started early on to raise awareness, you know, to talk about some of the things that were of importance where we could, where we weren't in that box, we weren't going to be kept in that box, we were going to go beyond that. And I think that's really important. So as I read in your bio, you indicated that you experienced throughout your your personal and professional journey, sexual harassment, wage gap, and glass ceiling from white men in the workplace. But you noticed the most harmful workplace behavior came from white women who viewed you as a threat to their proximity to white men in power. I love that in your bio. I want you to go more
1: into that and talk about that. Yeah. So because, because the early part of my career was in the immigrants' rights movement, and then I later, uh, I worked for the city of New York, uh, and then I worked in workforce development. I have kind of an unusual career in that I've, I've almost, uh, throughout my career, worked in majority people of color organizations, and most of my supervisors have been women of color. And that has been a fantastic experience because first of all, uh, I was able to observe them and learn from the way that they led, how to relate across difference as equals and how to, when you're marginalized, still have tremendous power and influence by the way that you relate with other people. So they've been incredible mentors and role models. But yeah, I, I have faced just really harmful, toxic behavior from white women who perceived me as a threat and who were senior to me within the organization, but not, not my direct supervisor. And they would come to me, they would approach me as if they were my mentor and confidant and friend, and they wanted to, to help me. So I would open up and like share with them different things about myself. And then they would turn and use that against me. They would gossip about me or use it to undermine my ability to advance or just in general bully me. And I was like, what are you doing? Like I I went to Mount Holyoke. Like I am a lifelong feminist, okay? I believe in solidarity with women. And and when I saw these women behave, it was like such um, dissonance, cognitive dissonance, because I'm like, that is not how women are supposed to behave. And it was also intensely hurtful. You know, it's one thing to be sexually harassed by by a man, but you kind of expect that. But to be harmed by one of your own hurts so badly. And one thing uh, one of these women said to me caused me to have to go to therapy. I mean, I'm like a very, (laughs) I am a very resilient, like happy, positive person, but she took me down so low. And what I realized also uh, in therapy is that I'm a sexual assault survivor. And so having her harm me in that way, even though in the grand scheme of things, you know, it's not that major, Um, took me back to that place when I was being sexually assaulted and I couldn't prevent it from happening. And so I I think this is really serious. You know, I, I, I facilitate a lot of workshops around workplace microaggression, but they're really not micro because it is evoking to someone, you are not safe here. And it's taking you to a past Traumatic experience and that's why they're so intensely harmful and why we have to prevent this kind of behavior
0: I have to agree with you there in regards to they're not microaggressions They're not microaggressions because they're paralleling and correlating with that trauma from way back when and so that reach traumatizes you and then it's up to you to of course the the, the onus is on you to change the behavior when that behavior may have been triggered. And so just tapping into what you said about women, I create a core women because it's a safe space for women to come and share their journeys to talk about both their personal and professional journeys and and be inspired, a place to be empowered by one another. Now I did a survey prior to constructing and starting core women the business. I did a survey as a researcher because I wanted to see what was impacting us as women. And one of the things I asked is, do you feel embraced by other women in a social setting? And about 42 to 45% said no. I asked, do you have female mentors in the workplace or at school? And 37% said no. And as I started getting these answers, I started thinking, wow, why aren't we doing better? why aren't we doing better as women to hold each other up and support each other and that's one of the reasons for for women one of the reasons but i align with what you're saying because i think we can do a better job now with that said of supporting one another with that said what have you learned in relation to not just racial inequality and division amongst women but what have you learned to overcome this and maybe deal with this and how you can mentor and how you can also teach about this
1: yeah well again my my greatest role models have been women of color and I'm I'm very fortunate to have many many women of color in my life friends mentors mentees Uh, And and I just learned so much from observing and talking with these women and, and doing all I can to be their ally and supporter. And what I've come to learn is that the reason why white women behave this way is because this is what the patriarchy taught us to do. And, you know, hurt people hurt people. And white women wouldn't be so toxic if we were not subjected to a lot of harmful behaviors. At the same time, we are rewarded with tiny amounts of power when we are allies to the patriarchy and when we do the patriarchy's handiwork. So we white women have to stop being complicit in that. And we have to pull away and say, hey, no, I'm gonna be in solidarity with other women. And I'm not going to do your handiwork. And I'm not going to harm other women. I'm here to support other women. And I'm here because I'm going to stand up for myself, too. And I'm not going to allow you to harm me or subject me to this treatment anymore. This is unacceptable. The hard part for white women is that our oppressors are you know, our husbands, our fathers, our, our children, our bosses, our priests, our, you know, we're, we're surrounded. So, and some of them obviously are not harmful. Some of them are, are helpful and, and very good. But it, it becomes, I think, cognitive dissonance for white women to try and distinguish who is harming me and who is helping me. But I do believe the foundation of everything is self-compassion. And we have to go back to our childhood and when we were initially harmed and like heal from that um, and and practice self-compassion. And that will be the foundation of having compassion with others. And then as far as how do we heal the divide between women, I host interracial sisterhood conversations, events intentionally designed to get women who are different across age, race, sex, class uh, to come together and sit in a room with each other and and listen to each other's stories. You know, I am an activist and I love a good protest and all of that, I'm, I'm totally down for it. But I think equally important in building a strong movement is building that connective tissue between us. And when we listen to each other's stories, that's where we start to find empathy. That's where we start to find solidarity. And that's how we build a true movement. And I I always come back to um, Audre Lorde's essay, Age, Race, Class, and Sex. And she's talking to women after we lost the Equal Rights Amendment. And she's explaining why we lost. And she said, you know, we have no patterns of relating across difference as equals. We only know how to relate in hierarchy because that's what the master taught us to do. And this is why whenever we try to come together to, to fight for, for change, we wind up hurting each other because we haven't taught each other the pattern of how to relate across difference as equals. So we keep repeating the harmful patterns that we learned. And she says... The master's tools will never dismantle the master's house. So we'll never be able to take down the patriarchy unless and until we change the way that we relate with one another. And I think that essay is so relevant for our time. I'm so inspired when I see those young Black people with the megaphones in the streets and all... People of all ages, races, classes, and sexes united behind them, marching together. I'm like, this is what I've waited for, like what what I've prayed for my whole life, you know? Uh, And I hope that this is finally that turning point where we're gonna realize that we not only need systems change, which I totally am in favor of systems change but we need change in our interpersonal interactions.
0: Absolutely. Absolutely. And I, and I want to take it a few steps back because I think what you said about how we've learned, how we're surrounded by and imposed upon in relation to uh, the men around us, the people around us that are sending us these messages, providing the messages and that we have been conditioned. So conditioned from both, men and women over time because, and here we are then perpetuating the cycle, right? So it becomes cyclical. And so a lot of times people, because of this conditioning, they don't recognize what's happened because it's really hard when you're surrounded by it to step outside of that circle, those concentric circles of sorts and say, what's happening here? I don't belong in this box or in this circle. I belong on the outer rim of the circle, as you do, as everybody else does, because we don't have to be conditioned in this way at all. So I think that, you know, you brought up some really great points here, and I'm going to have to go back and read that Audrey Lorde um, paper, because that sounds really very interesting. So as you spoke, you talked about how these these folks are getting out there, how these kids are getting out there, how they're making their voices heard. What I like about, and what I read in your bio also is, you decided and vowed to stop preparing young adults for the workplace and start preparing the workplace for young adults by sharing what you've learned. So can you go deeper into this concept and the application of this? Because I absolutely love those words because that's changing that paradigm from I'm having to teach these kids how to assimilate and adjust to their workplace versus having to change the organizational structure and the mindset of this management to really adapt to these kids. So can you go deeper into that? Because I really enjoyed that in your bio. It just got me really thinking and my, you know, everything clicking.
1: So <laughs> thank you. <laughs> yeah. yeah, so I, um, I was working for the city of New York, helping immigrants become citizens. One of the proudest um, uh, points in my career, we helped 50,000 New Yorkers apply for U.S. citizenship. And then in the post-9-11 economic downturn, our program got defunded. And that was right around the time when reports came out that said 50% of black men in New York city don't have a job. And we have almost 200,000 young adult New Yorkers, almost entirely black and Latinx who are not in school, not working. And coming from the immigrants rights movement, it was like, what? Like, how is that even possible? Like people move to New York city from all over the country and all over the world for limitless career opportunities so how is it possible that 50% of black men don't have a job and that it's not even a big deal this isn't you know call a press conference all hands on deck we're going to we're going to solve this crisis it was just like no biggie but to me it was a big deal i was like we need to do something about this this is wrong And I was fortunate to work in a city agency that took on the youth workforce development programs. Basically, the Department of Employment was shut down and they gave us the youth workforce development programs. And the commissioner said, figure this out. These programs are antiquated. We need to create, we need to totally revolutionize them. And I was able to co-found a private sector summer youth employment program internship. So instead of doing summer youth employment program in a park or a daycare center, young people were going off to JP Morgan and Bloomberg. And these were young people. Many of them had never left a four block radius of their apartment. You know, it's amazing in New York city, people, uh don't feel comfortable their parents don't feel comfortable letting them go far from the home so they've never been to central park you know and then they then they're coming into midtown and into these glassy high-rise buildings and i saw how transformative it was to them and to their supervisors their supervisors had never you know really hung out with a 17 year old black girl You know, and it was it was really, really transformative for everybody. But I was worried about those young people who were not in school, not working. And what were we going to do with them? And then I heard about Year Up and Year Up was training that group of young people also for careers in technology in corporations. And I said, that is radical. And I and I got the opportunity to go be a founding team member of Year Up when it expanded to New York. And part of the Europe model is you are a mentor to a group of students in every cohort. So I was spending, you know, every, every week, I'd be sitting down with a group of four or five young black and brown um, New Yorkers, both, both uh, men and women and, and gender non conforming folks, and just getting to know them. And that was when I really had to face my racism because I'm like, dang. I have so many assumptions and stereotypes about these young people. Where did that come from? And then also just listening to their lived experience. I was like so many times, wait, what, like what, like what happened to you? Cause they would just be telling their story so matter of family. And it was so complete. It was like a 180 degree, difference from what my growing up experience had been like so um so yeah then they were going off and working in these companies and they were they were doing a six month long internship and then getting hired and i i cannot tell you i mean summer i loved my job so much we moved to the bay area and the Year Up program here hired me to do student outreach and recruitment, which is like my idea of fun, right? I couldn't help but notice you appear to be an underemployed young adult. Here's a postcard. I want you to call this number. We're a free program and it will change your life. You'll, you'll make a whole lot more money when you graduate. And um, so I was so happy. But then 2014, a couple of things. I was fixated on Ferguson, because I saw in Mike Brown the many young Black men who were like my mentees, you know? And when his mom said he was gonna start community college and we never we never thought we'd be planning a funeral, I just couldn't as a mother, but just like, I couldn't, you know? Uh, so when when Darren Wilson wasn't indicted for killing him, It just shook me to my core. I thought for sure after all that um, uprising that there would be at least a trial, you know? And so I was really hurt by that. And then I went out to brunch with two young black women who had graduated from Europe, had been working now for tech companies for a couple of years. And they're telling me, Karen, we're super grateful for our incomes and our lifestyles and the fact that we're able to stay in Oakland while a lot of people are getting gentrified out. But coming into work every day and being the only young black woman, we are bombarded with ta- toxic comments, a lot of it coming from women who look like you. Uh, and it actually makes it really hard for us to be there. And I just had that moment where I'm like, dang, you know, here I am, I think I'm helping young people and in a sense, I am, because you know, they are graduating and getting really solid salaries and, and, and opportunities, but I'm also th- putting them in harm's way. And I think that there's a lot of people like me, you know, liberal, open-minded white people who grew up in virtually all white communities and never learned how to relate across differences equals. And now we flock to cities like New York city, San Francisco, for the limitless career opportunities that are available to us here. And and then all of a sudden we're in a managerial role and we don't know the first thing about how to relate with anybody who's different from us. And it was interesting through my own research, I realized it's not by chance that we grow up in all white communities. The town that I grew up in, in Loveland, Colorado, was a sundown town, meaning a town in which Black people were not allowed to rent, were not allowed to own, could not stay in a hotel. They had to be out of town by sundown. And these communities were all throughout the United States. They're all throughout the Bay Area and California too. Um, and and many suburbs were intentionally created. And then you look at the whole history of redlining. So there was, there's been a whole history of residential educational segregation intentionally designed to separate us and to kind of raise white children in this bubble of meritocracy and, you know, obliviousness about what's going on around you and yeah intentionally block other people from accessing those opportunities from from accumulating any kind of wealth and intentionally concentrating wealth in white families and it's going to take both legislative change and personal change on the part of white people because we would not be where we are Fifty years after the civil rights movement succeeded at changing our laws to ban discrimination, if white people didn't make personal choices, kind of beyond the scope of the ability of the government to legislate, um, that I, you know, some very intentional, but often on an unconscious level, that is what is not only not only is racial inequality, you know, um, consistent it's actually widening. And we know before COVID, median net wealth among Black families was projected to be zero by 2053, by Latinx families projected to be zero by 2073. And COVID is only going to accelerate those timetables without significant intervention. Right.
0: Yeah, you have mentioned so many things just in the sor- short few minutes here. <laughs> and, and it's hard to cover them all because we all have one, as you said, assumptions. Then you created these groups where you started talking and having people exchange their lived experiences so that they would there would be empathy. That for me is so important. I'm a researcher from a phenomenological perspective. I use that methodology. So that is in fact, understanding somebody's lived experience that is exactly what that means right so for me it's not just about the numbers it's about the qualitative information that i'm getting so i can better understand and put that information out there so other people can better understand the situation what the problem is what the question is what we're asking you to do and a lot of times a lot of times people are well intended as well but they just don't understand or know how to recognize their own bias we all have them whether or not they're conscious or otherwise we have them and i think that's that's really important to when we go out and educate is to let people know you're not alone in that we are all in that i don't care what color you are we all have biases right so age uh race you name it religion we have them and to understand that. So, opening the dialogue is really important. Making it a space, which is really important for core women, providing a space where it's safe, where we can have differences of opinions, but open the dialogue, being able to empathize and understand. And you're absolutely right. It's going to take communities. You know, those sundown communities, it's really interesting because. Yes, some of them have been created specifically to make sure that certain people aren't allowed into those communities. However, there are also communities like the one that I was raised in, in California, small beach town, where people, if you didn't make a certain amount, you absolutely couldn't even afford to live there. And if you did live there, you certainly didn't have a job that was paying you enough to live there. So you are either commuting in something. So, yeah, I mean, there's a multiple factors that really impact our our communities, our understanding of our biases, being empathic versus sympathetic. Those are two very different things. Um, And it's going to take a lot because it's going to take, like you said, legislative and personal change. Here's the thing for me is level of control do people want to release that control because there is a control factor in all of this. Like there is a control about being at that top of that, that hierarchy and then releasing that control and not having that pyramid hierarchy. So yeah, there is a level of control that you have to really kind of take a deep dive and say, can I release this? I need to release this. What does this look like? Because we're going to grow as a community more effectively if we all have a level of understanding and not control necessarily, because sometimes having so much control means we're kind of out of control. So we're absolutely. absolutely. That,
1: That is the root of white supremacy. That is how, you know, this whole system was designed so that a very small group of wealthy white people could control everything. And that we would all including unwealthy white people support that. And, and, and be their minions in policing everybody else. And it is exactly that about control. I remember in the early part of my career in the immigrants rights movement, going to meet with these white lawmakers who were like adamantly anti-immigrant and just their level of fear. Like they were so terrified that if their district changed that they would lose control that they wouldn't get reelected that all these things would change. And I'm like, dude, let it go. Like, we're <laughs> just people here. Like, it'll be okay. Trust me. It's going to be fine. Like, you 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 know, but it is it's such a fear mentality and that is what is driving so much in our society right now. What is driving white people to vote against their own self-interest uh, and support billionaires who do not give a, a flying blank about them, right? you know, <laughs> it's like, <laughs> yeah, but, but oh, I get to feel white. I get to feel like I'm superior and I'm in control. So I'm gonna, and even this whole Karen meme, right? I think the reason why the Karens are doing this is because they see their power waning and they want to like assert their power um, in this way. And and you're 100% right. It's absurd, like just let it go. You never had to, you know, you're no better than anybody else. And when we do let go, when we let go of the rabbit pellets that we are clutching so tightly, then our hand opens up and we can just receive so much more and not have to live with that fearful uh negative hateful uh mindset like it's just it's it's like it's it's so healthy it's so healing to stop behaving in that way and i'll add that there has never been a generation of white americans who stand as much to benefit from dismantling white supremacy as millennials and gen z because the cost of maintaining white supremacy is just too high we are spending 128 billion dollars a year incarcerating black and brown people and not making anybody any safer and that money could be spent on our public education system, on public universities, so kids don't have so much debt. You know, it could be uh, th- th- another thing that they've been harmed by the subprime mortgage lending crisis that led to the 2008 economic downturn, that led to them graduating into a terrible job market. And now they can't buy homes because after people of color lost their homes in foreclosure. Blackstone and Jared Kushner swooped in and bought up all the homes. So, so white millennials have been really harmed by white supremacy and have, it's so much in their self-interest to unite with uh, the leaders of color in their generation. And there's so many of them, right? There's, there's the squad, there's the founders of Black Lives Matter, There's Joe Nagus. I mean, there's all these amazing, um, the folks at Jamal and Mondaire who just got elected. There's all these amazing millennial leaders of color, both running for office and getting office and leading these movements in the streets. And so when white people, white millennials and white Gen Z unite under their leadership, it will be transformative. And that's one of my major messages is to reach out to my white millennials and point out how much you stand to gain from letting go of white supremacy. Yeah. And I think
0: it's getting to a core, to the core of a lot of these, these set or um, conditioned ideas and really breaking into that. And it, It's amazing how we're still dealing with that today, yet we are. And so it's people like you who are having these tough conversations, these interesting conversations, these important conversations, which gets me into my next question. And I want you to touch on this, your racy conversations and this concept and the development of racy conversations. Tell us more about that, Karen.
1: Yeah. So... I founded Racy Conversations in 2014. Our mission is to inspire the anti-racist generation. And just as you said, phenomenological, I mean, I don't use that word, but yes, I believe that we learn in conversation with each other. So at a Racy Conversations workshop, I tee up some material and then I pose questions and everybody turns to another person and we each answer those questions. And then when I facilitate back, I'm asking, what did you learn from your conversation partner? And it's creating a space that's like safe. And also where we're not, you know, depending on the marginalized people to teach us, but where they feel seen, heard, respected, and able to share their stories and people of privilege are able to hear their stories, not get fragile and turn and leave, but to really understand, okay, this is the harm that I'm causing. And this is the way that I need to transform and to take accountability. And, and it's interesting because a lot of people will be like, oh, my God, I was dreading coming to this. This is terrible, you know. And then then, then, then as they're leaving, they're like, wow, this is a real team builder. Like I, I opened up and talked about things that, you know, I never talk about, especially not with my colleagues. So that's what Racy Conversations is all about. Awesome. So again,
0: Racy Conversations, a workplace workshop facilitation company to inspire the anti-racist generation. Now we're coming towards the end of our conversation, but I want you to touch on your passions and your, and you've kind of touched on this already, but your passions and your activism, because you have touched on this briefly, but you were right in there. You were an activist. You were arrested. So last time you were arrested was when? And I'm going to have you mention it because I, I
1: read this so already. <laughs> well, yes. So the last time I was arrested was two years ago uh, with my sisters from the Women's March uh, for disrupting the confirmation of Supreme Court Justice Brett Kavanaugh. So we were there the whole, you know, September through October. Uh, we, we camped out on the Senate lawn so that we would uh, be first in line to get in to his confirmation on the day that it started. And I was among the the group of women who were the first batch to disrupt that hearing and, and get arrested that morning. And I will never forget, I love these women so much. They are incredible. I love the four original founders of the Women's March are the most incredible women. I'm so grateful for their leadership. And they are just incredible women. And it, it pains me so much. Like just this week with the Democratic National Convention, they're targeting Linda Sarsour, who's one of the, the founders of the Women's March. And Basically, expelled her and said, you know, she the Biden campaign does not support her. Linda Sarsour is such an incredible bridge builder and she's not anti Semitic at all. People try to portray her as anti Semitic, but she has very strong support and, and has worked very closely with the Jewish community. She was the first on the ground um, after Tree of Life to help the survivors and it just it breaks my heart to to see the way these four women have been personally attacked Um, but yeah so that was an incredible experience but predating that i became very involved in police accountability activism here in san francisco starting in 2015 when the san francisco police department executed mario woods a 26 year old black uh, young man and it turned out that mario wood's mom and i went to the same zumba class so we become friends and i got very involved in police accountability activism here uh in san francisco and met like the most incredible people i mean we're called into activism i think because we've experienced trauma and we're, and we're so sometimes we're a little bit hard to get along with and and things of that nature but i have i cannot tell you how much i love these people how much i've learned from them how inspired i am by them and it's been really transformative and we had some really great wins we got the police chief fired we got an outsider uh, hired we got a new use of force policy and and now we're working on defunding the police and transferring the money to supporting the Black community. And I will say this: when I started in police accountability activism, and people are like, "Oh, abolish the police," I was like, "What? Like, what are you talking? Abolish the police? Abolish prisons? Like, what are you talking about? We need those things." And then the more I got into it, the more I realized, actually, we don't actually you know, more than 50% of the calls to SFPD are for people, for homeless people who are having mental health issues. So why are we calling this militarized, you know, force in a uniform and all these weapons for someone who needs a mental health intervention? And I think we need to rethink everything in our society, including how did we wind up with so many mentally ill people living on the streets in the first place? And if we would just assess, well, what do we really need? And how are we currently spending our money? And, and starting to shift, okay, if this is what we need to, to raise up healthy young people because that's what Frederick Douglass taught us you know it's easier to raise up healthy young people than to fix people after they're broken um then you know I, I think it starts to make a whole lot more sense and now I don't think it's at all radical to say defund the police because we just need to shift and align our resources to our society's needs now i think
0: this is this is definitely an interesting subject of conversation and it's definitely maybe a part two because we can get into all kinds of factors as to what we're looking at in relation to not just defunding the police but looking at mental health how this began human behavior the impact i mean there are so many things. So as you start talking about it, my mind starts, you know, clicking, clicking, clicking all these things as to the factors. And so how can we change a, a structure, so to speak, that's been put in place for so long? And there's certain needs, certain re- things we have to recognize, and certain preventative factors we definitely can put into place. But again, we're looking at human beings. So human beings, we develop our behavior based on a lots of different things. So as I said, this can be a conversation for another day because there's so much to go off of. And of course, my clinical brain starts going all over the place about, you know, especially mental health. And we know if we go way far back uh, how this came about in relation to those people being on the streets. So And the history of that and what that looks like, because I've wrote multiple papers on that. So we're getting to the last question. And I want to thank you so much for sharing all of your wisdom and all of your insight. But my last question today is, if
1: you were to leave the listeners with some words of wisdom, what would they be? I end all my workshops with this quote from Lao Tzu. If you want to change the world, then change yourself. If you want to eliminate the darkness in the world, then eliminate all that is dark within yourself. Truly, the greatest gift you have to give is that of your own self-transformation. And I believe in that quote, because I don't know about you, I feel completely overwhelmed most days. Um, (laughs) I mean, it's unbelievable. You know, we're up to almost 6 million people sick in 170,000 Americans dead and how many people have lost their jobs, their businesses shut down, uh, how many people are risking their lives every day out on the front lines. And then you just feel like, well, what on earth can I possibly do to make things better? And I say to people, focus on your self-transformation. And that is how we are going to get to the transformation we need to see throughout our society and and unite with like-minded women like you and build community.
0: Yes, absolutely. Thank you so much for those wise words. And thank you for sharing your time with me today. Thank you, Summer. It's a pleasure and an honor. Thank you, Karen. If you'd like to connect with Karen Fleshman, you can connect with her on LinkedIn or at www.racyconversations.com. If you need a strategic empowerment coach, contact me. If you want to tell your story of empowerment or how you have reconstructed your life to drive change, send me a video or an email of your story, providing permission to use it on my social media platforms. If you want to be featured on my podcast, reach out to me at info at corewomen.com. I want to hear from you and to get to know you. You are now part of the Core Women Home. Let's get to know each other. Let's learn from one another. Please follow CORE Women on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Please let your women friends know about this podcast. If you write about CORE Women in your social media posts, please hashtag CORE Women. This is all about women. Thank you for taking the time to learn more about CORE Women, and please stay tuned for continued growth of the CORE Women movement. Let's grow and drive change together.